0: hallelujah amen father we worship today and we celebrate the work of christ on calvary when the lamb overcame for thousands of years lord all creation had been groaning and your people had been waiting looking forward to the day when you would provide old covenant sacrifices to provide for a provisional and temporal covering of sins but the once and for all sacrifice that would wash away forever, once and for all, every spot, every blemish, the decrepit nature of mankind as sinners for everyone who places faith in your name would come on Calvary. And as we've studied, Lord, recently, we see the sufferings of Christ laid out in these holy scriptures before us today. We see, Lord, that the greatest of all triumphs, was accomplished on the darkest day when our Savior was slaughtered on Calvary's tree. At the place of the skull, at Golgotha, where He was crucified for us, and nails were driven in His hands and feet, and a sword and a spear pierced His side. The blood that flowed had the power to wash away our sin. And so we celebrate this morning that the Lamb has overcome This morning, as we open your scriptures and read of the life of faith of those who believe these things with all their heart that preceded us, I pray that we would be inspired to join them in their confession and in their obedience as you equip us, Lord, with your word in faith and building instruction for how we should live and light of the gospel. Thank you for this time that you have given us And help us to realize, Lord, the great price that was paid to make this morning meaningful and possible. Bless our time in your scriptures. Humble us before your holy word and your authority. And may we leave this place never the same on account of your spirit's use of this service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Praise God for the great... Privilege and opportunity to open up the Scriptures together today. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to Hebrews 11. Our communion service today brings us back to our Hebrews series. We've been working through the book of Hebrews once a month on Communion Sunday. We're in chapter 11, verses 13 through 19. In this section of Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith or the Faith Chapter, There's a list of many examples of faithful men and women who have preceded us, those who had less to go on by way of revelation, but nevertheless had enough to know that Christ would come and place their hope and their fortunes in expectation that God would wash away their sins in due time with the coming Messiah. Abraham was one of these and he is chiefly featured central to this list. And because he is such a pattern for our faith, we see in Hebrews that much time is given to his example. So I pray this morning as we look again at Abraham and look again at faith that we would grow in our understanding of what faith is and what it means to walk according to our faith and also that we might join one day in this long list, giving testimony to others of what God has done in our lives because of the work of Christ on Calvary. So. If you are able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand with me this morning with your Bible open to Hebrews 11 and let us consider these scriptures together this morning. Here we have before us the infallible, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword word of God. We begin in Hebrews 11:13. 13. Listen as I proclaim, these all died in faith Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Faith on This Side. Faith on this side of what, you might ask? Well, in the words of our text today, faith on this side of all things promised in the gospel. Faith on this side, that is to say, of receiving the fullness of what is promised in the gospel. We have yet to receive heaven, for instance. Faith on this side of a homeland that we, like Abraham of old, as sojourners and aliens, still seek. Faith on this side of a better country, that we see in our text as well. A place that has a, better, that has a different constitution That is ruled by the king of kings and every aspect of the economy of that life together is utterly transformed to represent in the best way possible the original intent that God had for creation. Faith on this side of that better country. And finally, faith on this side of a heavenly country or a heavenly place, again is described as a city, or that is also described as a city in our text today. Verse 16 again, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Who do the pronouns refer to in this passage, in this verse I just read? They are those who have faith. They are the ones who are God's people, called out, transformed, regenerated, born again changed from the inside out and changing on the outside due to that inward change via sanctification as they live their life of faith. So faith on this side, faith on this side of glory, if you will, is the theme of today's message. As we consider this, I was reading this week from Matthew Henry's commentary, and in speaking of writing on his thoughts, the verse we just read, Hebrews eleven sixteen, he says the following, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Since uh, such is his condescension, such is his love. So speaking of the faithful that trust in the Lord, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Such is his condescension, his reaching down from his transcendence into our experience. Such is his love to them. Therefore, let them never be ashamed by being called his people since God is not ashamed to call us his own we should not be ashamed to call God our own one might add several attitudes alongside ashamed in Matthew Henry's quote given the calling of faith and its great extremes expounded in scripture and experienced in every age that is sometimes or the suffering that we are sometimes called to go through and the testing that every true believer is called to go through Perhaps we could additionally say, let them, that is, if you are in Christ today, let us never be afraid, discouraged, angry, disillusioned, distracted, dissuaded, or depressed to be called his own. Now, while a Christian can expect to struggle with these frames of mind, there are times where we will no doubt under the circumstances, the weakness of our flesh, feel angry or disillusioned, for instance, while we will wrestle with these, frame of, these frames of mind, let us beware not to be ultimately captive by them or captivated by them, and, and thus show ourselves to be faithless, or thus walk away from our professed faith, as is the definition of apostasy, and, is war, and that very state of walking away from your professed faith is warned against in the book of Hebrews over and over. As we consider this idea of endurance and perseverance, even in sorrow, suffering, and trial, one can't help but think of Paul, the apostle who in some ways is the quintessential example of suffering or sharing in the suffering of Christ's uh, Christ's sufferings for his name. Paul often speaks of his experiences that he endured and that others may well uh, have cited as a cause for abandoning their faith. Listen to this list compiled from 2 Corinthians 11. Paul said that he endured imprisonments, countless beatings, near-death moments. Five times he was lashed, 40 minus one stripes, and that number is significant because they tell us the human body usually cannot contain or cannot handle 40 stripes. So history tells us that he was lashed within an inch of his life, so to speak. Not only this, but beatings with rods, stoning, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, dangerous journeys, dangerous rivers, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure, anxiety for all the churches. All of these things were the mounting trials that Paul dealt with this side of glory. Yet Paul had faith on this side. Paul himself was a man of faith, illustrating Hebrews 11 well in his life and ministry. And so it might lead us to ask this morning, what was his secret? What was the secret of his and the heroes of Hebrews 11's faith on this side of glory? And our text today has some answers for us. Let us consider them. There's one thing I would like us to take away from this message that could perhaps be summarized in this phrase. First of all, to the negative this life is not the end. Now, there are many formulations of so called Christian truth that are popularized today that tell us that Jesus is the means to our ends. Our ends, meaning a great life, a good experience, a joyful, fulfilled existence. But I'm here to tell you from the scriptures today, those things are secondary. And in fact, what Hebrews 11 teaches us and Paul's testimony, as we have just recounted a few details, they teach us that this life is a means to God's end. This life is a means to God's glory. If God in his perfect wisdom has determined that beatings, imprisonment, stoning, abandonment, shipwreck, and all of these things might glorify Him in the life course of a single believer or a group of believers, a church's experience, so be it. Faith on this this side says, I will yet follow You, Lord, and embrace these trials with joy, knowing that they are a means that is worth it to the end of Your glory. One more thing encouraging along these lines is that this end that Hebrews 11 speaks of Though it is best summarized perhaps in the phrase, the glory of God. It includes promises for you and me beyond the imagination. The glory of God will be manifest as the fullness of what Christ purchased comes into the experience of the believer. And this includes a day in the future without sorrows, without pain, without any shred of sin, sorrow, darkness, shadow of turning a glorious existence where this whole earth, our experience, the world and each other are redeemed, absolutely made whole, and absolutely beyond what even Adam and Eve might have known, may I suggest to you, because the glory of God has so advanced in the experience of the believer that it has rendered us holy, pure, without sin and without the capacity to sin in the next life, on the other side. We just have a little bit of time to wait. We just have a little bit to suffer until we get there. We need faith on this side, but when we look to the joy set before us on the other, like Christ did when He endured the cross, we can take the advice of Hebrews, both 11 and 12, and be encouraged. There are three phrases perhaps we could use from our text today to summarize the life of faith. Let me give them to you and they will form the structure of our message today. Three phrases summarizing the life of faith. Number one, greeted them from afar. Let us consider what it means, that what the scriptures mean when they say in Hebrews 11 that the faithful greeted the blessings or the promises of God from afar. Secondly, let's consider the meaning of this phrase, opportunity to return. If, there's an if-then construction in the text. If they had looked too much backward and not forward, the faithful would have had opportunity to return. So there's a warning there. And then thirdly, he was tested, speaking of Abraham. A phrase summarizing the life of faith is testing. He, Abraham, was tested, but he was tested as a prototype or an archetype as we spoke of last time, an example of one who lived by faith. So let us consider these. First of all, greeted them from afar. Returning to our text today, Hebrews 11:13. These, speaking of those who have gone before already in the text, you remember them, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. But as it is, they but as it is, a heavenly or as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This interlude here, verse thirteen through sixteen, is a general aside or it's a parenthesis between recounting the faith of Abraham and Sarah and then returning to the faith of Abraham. And verses 17 through 19. And it speaks in general concepts, um, aspects of the the life of faith. And using phrases like greeted them from afar, it's speaking of those who follow in Abraham, Sarah's, Enoch's, Abel's, and Noah's footsteps. It says of, of these that they all died in faith. I would like us to notice that phrase, in faith. Because the construction there is a little different than what the author has been using, you'll notice most common to the uh, chapter is by faith. Moving back in our text, verse eleven, verse three, or chapter eleven, verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Then we move on to the examples of these individuals, verse four, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. We go to Enoch, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Again, by faith, Noah, verse 7. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And finally, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place Well, not to be excluded, verse 11, his wife Sarah, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And then verse 13, you'll notice now the shift. These all died in faith. They didn't die by faith, as it were. They died in faith. And this is a little different way of stating aspects of the life the mentality, the changed heart of these believers. May I suggest to you that this phrase, in faith, refers to a passive sense in which faith is true for them. Passive meaning that it's not a result of their actions. By faith, Abraham, Enoch, and Abel acted. Yet in faith, they died safe and secure in the hands of the Lord. There is an aspect of our faith that it that depends entirely on the work of Jesus Christ. By faith here, this phrase indicates to the reader that he is, as it appears on the page, he is instructed to consider not just the accomplishments by the faithful individuals that were listed, but resting in the reality of God's work. When God grants, to, grants unto us the gift of faith, we believe, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. We believe that Jesus Christ is the high priest fulfilling the office of Aaron. We believe that Jesus Christ was the, one, the only fitting one to fulfill the roles of salvation. Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first of his own sins then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So that is putting these thoughts together then. It is faith in the Messiah who has come, the holy, innocent, unstained one, the one separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens, Jesus Christ, the high priest, the sacrifice, the intercessor, our Lord, the ascended one who rules at the right hand of the Father, having made propitiation for sins. It is faith in Him in which we live and die as believers with the assurance that we ourselves will be saved. He is spoken of again in Hebrews 1 as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let us never forget, although the life of faith is marked by good works, that they are evidence of the work of Christ. Christ, by his right hand, upholds the entire universe, and by his pierced hand, purchased our salvation. There would be no faithfulness. There would be no heroes of the faith, humanly speaking, if they had not faith in the one who died, who did the work, who accomplished their salvation. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They were looking forward, those who are listed so far, To the crucified coming one, the Messiah, the Lamb, who would be the true God-provides moment, as was prefigured in Abraham's experience when the ram was supplied in the bush in lieu of the sacrifice of his son. It was the coming Christ that Abraham looked forward to. And we will find this affirmed in Jesus' own words. In this sense, Abraham died in faith. In faith that God would provide. God did not provide for Abraham by Abraham's works. God provided for Abraham by the work of the Messiah. And so Abraham's works are evidence of that truth. This is basic theology, root and branch. The root is God's work. The branch or fruit is ours. And this, and we should never grow tired of, tired of reminding ourselves of these truths, lest we gather for ourselves some undeserved glory and do a disservice in our worship before the Lord. It is a foundational notion that the work and the offering of Jesus Christ is the sole ground of our salvation. Why, do you, you might ask, are these elements before us today? This question is to be expected. At the Passover in Genesis, the rite and ritual that is laid out for the people of God to remember the day of His deliverance is given as a teaching aid to the children who will follow, the lineage of that generation who is redeemed out of Egypt by the power of God's merciful right hand. And so in the the Passover ceremony, when the children would ask, what is the reason for this table? The answer would be to remember what God has done. And so that meal would inspire faith in generation after generation to look forward remembering their deliverance and look forward to ultimate deliverance from the sin, from the slavery of sin. And Jesus himself has commissioned this meal here today as the fulfillment of Passover. And so as we take the bread and as we take the cup representing his body and blood, we are reminded that faith in what is a, was accomplished as represented by these elements is the ground of all faithfulness. It is the cause. It is the foundation, the cornerstone, the very bedrock of all that is built upon it. Under greeted them from afar. Next, let us consider in a little bit more detail the descriptors of what we look forward to in faith. Notice that faith I'll just remind you, a brief summary definition, a working definition that we've been using is this. What is faith? Faith is believing in and acting on the promises and power of God. When Hebrews 11 speaks of faith, if we take a summary definition, it is to say something like that. Faith is believing in and acting on the word of God. Or you could say the power and promises of God. We also see the concept of city over and again. Verse 10, he, Abraham, was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We see also in verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Later we see a reference in chapter 12, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. So it kind of begs a definition as well. What does Hebrews mean when it refers to city? Well, if we think of a city as a community organized by shared values and a shared vision for the future, we might have something, a working definition of the economy of faith. Today, this meal we refer to at times as communion. Communion is fellowship, unifying bonds. There are shared values that bind together the body of Christ. Each member comes and supplies its part joined together under its head Christ and this is a powerful bond indeed. It forms for itself, if you will, a community, a city. It is an organization, an economy, or you could say a network of relationships organized by shared values with the same vision for the future. Shared values, shared future. Think of it this way. Jesus Christ Forms a relationship with us in his shed blood. And we are adopted then sons and daughters of almighty God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are heirs of Abraham. We are children of the almighty. Powerful relational language. The most intimate terms of family given to describe our relationship with the Lord. We are the bride of Christ. He as it were is our bridegroom. Again powerful relational language. That relationship, Jesus Christ to his bride, God the Father to his children, is so strong indeed that it redefines the network of all other relationships and God begins to reweave the fabric of an entire economy, a civilization, a people, a nation, a city. And this is the idea. Now this is happening thread by thread in the tapestry of God's future plans. But as we are redeemed and are woven into his tapestry, the redeemed economy of all of history and what is to come into the future, we find ourselves joined as citizens in the kingdom of God looking forward to a future that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. This is life for us on the other side. So faith and city, they both uh, are kind of are alongside each other and hand in hand to help us understand this new reality that we have in Christ. And then we have this list in context of what is to be expected. We have things promised, a homeland, a better country, a heavenly place, and a city prepared for us. So getting back to that phrase in question, greeted them from afar, to what does that statement refer? These all died not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the things that were greeted from afar are the promises of salvation. It is what we are looking forward to. Now just to cheat a little bit and indulge ourselves with a spoiler, we move forward one chapter and the author describes these things that were greeted from afar and to some degree for ourselves as well. It does so, the author does so by comparing the experience of the believers of old when they approached Mount Sinai to the experience of believers in the future as they approach Mount Zion. He says in verse 21, describing the former, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But then there's a shift, this conjunction in verse 22. But you have come, so by contrast now, to Mount Zion. And to, here's the word, the city of the living God. Here's another adjective, descriptor, heavenly Jerusalem. And here's another thing to look forward to. To innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see the vision that is cast for the community of believers do you see some more descriptors that describe for us the city to come is a place of overflowing blessing based on what christ has done populated by innumerable angels too many to count the saints who have gone before and all of the all of the faithful all of the elect that the, re, that the uh, uh, angels have reaped in through history, assembling in heaven because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood has bought for himself this city, this people, this promise, this heavenly place, this vision for the future. Let me ask you by way of application, what do you value today? Today? When you ask yourself, boy, wouldn't it be nice if, and then fill in the blank, or I'm looking forward to, then fill in the blank, or if I could just have one thing, I would appreciate, then you finish that sentence with something. How many times at the end of our wishful thinking daydreams do we fill in that blank with something that perishes with the using? Less stress at work, a little bit more money, in, re- in tax returns, uh, just that my car would hang on for another you know, two years until I can afford to get another, or that politics uh, would produce some promise in this nation and people would stop squabbling, we could get a little more promise of peace. When we hear the promises that are offered to us in culture and in society, they always come inevitably, invariably it seems they come by way unless there's a gospel exception, they come by way of the temporary. They cast a vision of shared values and a future that is limited to this life. But remember what we said, this life is to be means to a greater end, the city of God, the kingdom of God, his glory. Something that this life and this world in its as of yet fallen state can never contain. Can never contain no matter how hard we try in our futility and rebellion we cannot build for ourselves a tower called babel and claim it's just like a competitor with and gives me the peace and security and assurance that the kingdom of god can what do we value today don't set your sights too short don't be satisfied with a little bit of crumbs and junk food that this world our society political promises, and humanism has to offer. Look beyond. These things can fill our belly up. We can lose our appreciation and appetite for spiritual things by filling ourselves with junk food. Don't do that. Think of the things that are promised to you. Treat them as from afar. Don't look for temporary fixes, but be willing to have a gnawing hunger in your heart and soul for something yet on the horizon. Thousands have preceded you that can relate to that experience. a gnawing desire. I know that Abraham wished that he could settle down, don't you? There's no possible way in the natural that a man who enjoyed the comforts, the security, and the conveniences of a civilized city could be utterly content to be a nomad and a wanderer, but he was looking for something. A city whose designer and builder was God. And that sense of longing... That sense of a desperation or just on the horizon expectation is part and parcel to the life of faith. And we will all experience this together. Don't fill that desire with something short-sighted that perishes with the using. Remain hungry for that which is yet beyond our grasp. And in this way you will begin to live like a stranger and an alien. Why? Because... Your citizenship in this earth does not describe in full your identity. It's a subset, it's a segment, it's secondary, it is not primary. My life in this earth, as it's represented in these few short years, is just something that is again a means to a greater end. It says again in our text, in verse 13, These died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And and, uh, may I add by commentary that home is never contained in what this life in its current fallen state could offer. It's yet on the horizon. The Greek word again is palingenesia, used twice in scripture means regenerated earth the entire environment and experience remade according to God's perfect plan of redemption are we too at home in this world in this culture are you do you look like on a day-to-day basis more like a citizen someone who finds your identity here or are you content to be something like a stranger and an alien first peter Chapter 2 picks up on these themes. As such a great cross reference. Consider verse 9. Again, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the charge, the exhortation, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, same language, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, you are peculiar. You are different. There's something about you that does not find its identity in this mere existence. Live that way in part as a sojourner, as an alien, as a a pilgrim passing through. So that when people see the difference in your affections, in your expectations, and they ask for a reason of the hope within, you can tell them, I have my sight set on something that this world simply cannot contain or satisfy but all of history is moving forward toward because Christ has come. He, the incarnate son, invaded history, stooped low to become a man, to give himself as an offering and a sacrifice for many to accomplish something grand, beyond our wildest imaginations. I am looking forward to it, and so I don't want to become satisfied with cheap imitations and counterfeits, this side of glory. This life is a means to that end secondly let's consider a phrase opportunity to return and here we have the warning language again implicit in our text it's been explicit before in Hebrews if we move back for instance a little ways in our text the first time as I recall it appears this warning language is in chapter 2 verse 1 this church needed to be shaken awake from the dangerous path they were walking The author says, therefore, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay closer attention. Later in the text, he says, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. These two go hand in hand. Why are we here today? Well, in part, to pay, pay closer attention to the Word of God as we hear it proclaimed, as we consider it, as we meditate, as we think about it. Because if we do not do this, we can be in danger of drifting away of forgetting that our home, our identity is wrapped up in the city of God, in the kingdom of God, that this world cannot contain. For since the message declared to you by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Some of the harshest warnings appear in the book of Hebrews. And as we see them, we find that they are are compassionate, Directive, exhortation, indeed. Because we need to keep our mind and eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. So we don't become cheapened in our experience, in our understanding, and in our love, and our affection, our desires, and simply pursue what this world has to offer. Opportunity to return. Moving back to our text today. For these people, verse 14, for the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Think of Abraham. In the picture of his life, he leaves Ur, and then later he leaves Haran to become a sojourner. What would have been the most difficult part of that journey? You leave an established city, you have all your tents packed, and you begin to walk into the wilderness. I submit to you the Most difficult part of that journey would probably be the first hundred yards. Am I making a huge mistake? You would be so tempted in your flesh and yourself to look over your shoulder and see the lights on in the evening and know that soon you will have no such thing. To see the protective walls protecting, you know, guarding the city against bandits that would come with their sentinels, each perched with a nicely sharpened arrow to shoot dead any intruder. And you would think, wow, to be there in that safety and security. So if you think about Abraham, when he is called to leave the city of Ur, and then called to be a wanderer, at that point at the beginning, when he can still look over his shoulder and see the creature comforts of where he used to live, I think that would be the hardest time to be a sojourner, to be an exile, to be a wanderer. And there's something similar in our life as believers. Sometimes the toughest trials, as we are made new in Christ, and are embracing the transformed lifestyle of a believer is right at the beginning. But let me submit to you, we must pay close attention to the scriptures. Because at any given time, we're close enough to the old life, and we're surrounded by enough sin to look over our shoulder and begin to get a lustful and long, you know, a listless feeling. Wouldn't it be nice to return to those secure walls of humanism? Wouldn't it be nice to return to what the world promises for a short time will give me comfort, identity, fame, peace, security, wealth, and so on. Uh, Those who truly had faith, however, demonstrated as much when they did not look over their shoulder because they knew if they had been thinking, meditating on that which they came from, then it would be dangerous and they would present themselves with opportunity to return. So far, it has occurred to me that of the individuals listed in Hebrews 11, each one of them corresponds to a city. And listen, uh, just briefly, let me give you a biblical history lesson, just a couple of points from the Old Testament Scriptures. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. We know the story. Cain killed Abel. I mentioned in a previous message that Cain was then condemned to be a wanderer. Because of your sin, God said you must wander, you must be a sojourner, an exile and an alien. Did Cain embrace the will of God to be a sojourner? No. Cain built a city in fear. Notice, Abraham left a city in faith to be a sojourner. Cain uh, rebelled against a life of sojourning to build a city in fear. Guess what he named that city? He named that city Enoch after his son. We know the story of Noah. He and his seven family members are the only ones who are willing to be wanderers, as it were, by floating in a boat as the entire world is destroyed. Every city that had been built in fear to give man a sense of belonging, community, and safety was destroyed in one fell swoop. Shortly after Noah's flood, another city was built, you know its name, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a rebellion against the Lord. It stood in opposition to him, and so he destroyed it as well. But as the nations are dispersed from that place, God sets his affections on one man and says, from you I will make a great city and a great nation. He calls him out of the, city, of the little pagan city that he was in, namely Abraham, and sets him on a course in his life. But now let us consider Lot. Lot was a relative of Abraham, as you recall, and as we pick up on his story, again, we see a dramatic contrast. Lot was attracted to the cities. Abraham, again, out of obedience to the Lord in faith, was content to water and feed his flocks in the wilderness. Lot would not have any such thing He chose, Abraham gave him first dibs, and he chose for himself the cities of the plains. The place, again, of assurance, safety, security, and provision that was supplied by human means instead of God's. In Genesis 19.15, we pick up on the end of this story. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Notice that phrase. Get up, get out of here, lest you be swept up in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him and brought them out and set them outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Notice. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and die. Notice the heart of Lot. In fear, he wants a city. He will not go to the hills in faith. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, verse 21, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you ride there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Interesting contrast, is it not? Lot chose to camp in the cities of the plains, a place ridden with, riddled with sin and paganism, such that God would destry, decided to destroy the city. Lot is just scared out of his gourd as he leaves the city and begs on his hands and knees, you know, please, 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 send me to another city. I can't go to the hills. I'll be destroyed. What about Lot's lineage? Abraham, it was promised through his lineage God would make him a great nation. Did that happen to Lot? No. Uh, Instead of faith, out of fear, his daughters committed acts of incest with him to try to ensure their lineage. Again, to create for themselves a community, a people, a family, a future, a lineage, a city, a place, an economy. What happened? Well, didn't go so well. The Moabites and the Ammonites became two of the chief enemies of the lineage of Abraham. The lineage of Abraham was Israel, of course, and all of the the tribes that eventually populated the land. The Ammonites wouldn't let them through. The Moabites wouldn't let them through. Both of them subcontracted out Balaam to place a curse on their nation, and they lived a life of infamy and lawlessness, wickedness, and sin all because their forefather feared wandering and lusted after the city. This is the picture in Scripture where these concepts come to the fore. Notice Lot's wife, what happened to her, you remember? She looked over her shoulder at the city. She found opportunity to return. God judged her. She turned into a pillar of salt. Those who are among the faithful are distinct from these examples. They are more along the line of Abraham. They are people who speak thus and make it clear that they are seeking a homeland that is not defined or contained again by this life. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return like Lot's wife, look over the shoulder, boom. Your future is a pillar of salt, judgment by God. And so we see this warning is very serious indeed, especially as we compare the lust for the city to the uh, faith of the wanderer in exile throughout the course of Hebrews' compendium, this catalog of the faithful. Finally this morning, a phrase summarizing the life of faith. He was tested. Speaking of Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen: By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that god was able even to raise from him the dead raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back notice here we're back to the by faith we began with in faith the passive reality of faith the belief that god's works are the foundation for our souls Now we have the evidence of that in the by-faith action of Abraham when he was tested beyond comprehension, at least in my mind. Abraham, when he was commanded by God himself to be obedient to him, to offer his own son as a sacrifice, demonstrated the fruits of repentance and faith by willingly marching to Moriah with his son and the wood in tow, trusting that God would provide How could Abraham believe such a thing? Abraham's faith was growing. Remember in verses prior, verse 11, by faith Sarah herself conceived, after she received power, even when she was past the age, she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore from one man, notice this phrase, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham and Sarah both knew that their ability to reproduce was as good as dead. Yet God had resurrected from that circumstance a son for them, Isaac. And this son came to them in their old age, far beyond their fruit-bearing years, and proved that God has power over life and death. And so Abraham continued as an alien exile and sojourner, to make his trek towards Mount Moriah with his son, no doubt in deep anguish of heart and soul, yet knowing in faith that God, who could cause the barren room to rejoice with children, can raise a slaughtered son from the dead, and he would one day. God would do it in Jesus Christ our Lord. This was a test and a testimony. Abraham's faith that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, receiving his own son back from the dead was a test that Abraham in faith passed and demonstrated God's working in his heart, but it was also a testimony of a son to come. A son who would be killed at the hand of the father on Golgotha's hill as we've read and learned about even last week in our message. And this son would rise again. Finally, As we consider one last point in our message today, notice that key to our faith, to Abraham's faith, to any faith at all, is the belief, the certainty that God has the power to raise from the dead. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Time and again in the epistles, we are challenged. With the work of the gospel, we are challenged to believe the total work of the gospel. That Christ lived a perfect life, preached the message of the kingdom, died in our stead, was buried for three days, was resurrected on the third day, was ascended to the Father. These acts in history, this work of redemption is what any believer has faith in. Central to our faith, just as to Abraham's faith, is belief in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us as much in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, if God does not have power over death, if Christ did not defeat the final enemy, then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Faith on this side believes in God's power to resurrect. It believes that Jesus was resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we have the assurance that we will bodily join him in glory one day. This is the only way that you and I can live. Counter culture, counter the world, counter the thinking of the default setting of the sinful human heart denying ourselves creature comforts, growing in our sanctification and understanding. Why? Because we look forward to a place of fullness, blessing, benefit, community, glory, worship, provision beyond this life because we will be raised with Christ. Abraham believed it and on the basis of this fact, he marched obediently to the hill of sacrifice with his son in tow. God provided But what is represented before us in communion today was a son who was led up the hill of Calvary. And that day he was killed. He did not remain in the grave. The power of God over death and life was demonstrated in Christ's work in the gospel. And when God raised his son from the dead. We have proof positive, the absolute assurance, the basis of our certainty, the root and branch of our faith, the cornerstone upon which the Christian life is built. And as we look to that event, the power of God to resurrect, we can have faith on this side. Faith that will let us live like this life is what it is according to God's intent. Just a means to His end. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these moments that we could spend taking in the glorious truth of the gospel in your scriptures. Stir our faith, Lord Jesus. Let us look forward to the joy set before us because of what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that our head would turn away from looking back. Let us find no opportunity to return. Let us not grow content and satisfied in this life. But let us look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, Lord, in these elements before us represented the price that was paid to make this possible. I pray, Lord, as we consider them, that you would build our faith, that in your work on Calvary, Lord Jesus, resurrection is in our future. Because you died, because you were raised, death and sin are defeated, and we look forward to new life in you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would search our hearts this day. If we find room for repentance, that we would leave at the altar this morning that which easily besets, and that we would look to Jesus Christ and who for the joy set before him endured even the cross for our sake. Thank you, God, for these truths. May they be etched upon our souls as we leave. May they be translated into acts of faith beyond this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.